He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day, Saturday, November 6, 2021. Gosh, we have a fantastic show with two of my most fascinating friends, Marshall Fogel, a legendary lawyer, former Denver prosecutor, a union organizer, a baseball card billionaire. Oops, Marshall doesn't like me saying that, but what can I tell you? He's recognized as an all-time sports memorabilia collector, and uh, he's done well by it. Marshall will tell you he's a smart, tough Jew from Denver, Colorado, and I believe it. You will find out from this great interview, the definitive Marshall Fogel interview in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. But don't miss Dave Gunders, another smart Jew, who we have adopted in Denver. Our homes are so close. We're neighbors. We're the greatest of pals, and it was his birthday when we recorded on Friday, and we had a lot of fun, full of surprises, some gifts on the air, and a great song, Safe Haven. You've got to hear it. What lyrics, what power, the usual Dave Gunders elements. I love it. After we did our recording, we went upstairs and Trish made French toast because he wanted French toast because when we broke the fast, I told him we did it with French toast challah and he said, oh my gosh, I love that. Can I have some? I said, you can on your birthday. And we made it for him late in the afternoon and we said a hamotzi and a Shabbat Shalom. Let me tell you what else I did leading up to this show because I... In my heart, was a prosecutor myself in Denver. 16 years, a lot of big cases, a lot of first-degree murder trials, always ready to cross-examine the defendant, but it rarely happened. Sometimes it did, and man, you talk about an all-stakes, one-on-one confrontation. It's when a murder defendant takes this stand. I remember Ernie Fajardo was accused of a gang killing involving Bar- Barrios Unidos Chicanos, B-U-C. And he denied being a member, but I had the advantage of DPD intelligence. And I knew on his naked body there was a tattoo that said B-U-C. And I had him, I think, pull up his pants leg to the point where you could see that he had B-U-C tattooed on his leg. And that did not go well for him. But it went much better for Stephen Pankey in an incredible murder trial going on in Greeley this week. He got cross-examined by Michael Rourke, the DA up in Weld County, and he more than held his own, which is surprising because the defendant Pankey is a weird guy by his own admission, by his lawyer's own admission. At the heart of this case, the case I've been following up in Greeley is the horrific December 20, 1984, home kidnapping of little Janelle Matthews, 12 years old, 
never to be seen again. Her body recovered years later, shot to death 20 miles from her Greeley home where she got kidnapped. Guy who lived not far away who ended up having a big grudge against the church where Jonelle's family went was a guy named Steve Pankey. And he started implicating himself in a variety of ways. And then his ex-wife told the DA about some strange stuff and things that Pankey had said through the years publicly, privately, and it led to his arrest and charging for first-degree murder of Janelle and this incredible moment that's on YouTube. I watched it. I broke it down when Michael Rourke cross-examines Stephen Pankey and if you hold on till toward the end of the podcast, I've got all of this sound, and I break it down, and I explain why Panky may have gotten the better of the DA, but it could be better next time around, because I think there should be a next time, a mistrial, a hung jury this go-round, but if Panky gets prosecuted again, I have some advice for Mr. Rourke. I think you will enjoy it. And I think he'll appreciate it if he takes the time to listen. I want justice to be done. And I don't know for sure because I did not sit through the whole trial. A lot of it's on YouTube, but Mr. Panky, I think he didn't. But I need to know more, and there needs to be better advocacy. Listen to the back half of the show. You will understand why, but here's a great storyteller. A guy who's been in many a successful trial. He is my friend in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Welcome back, Marshall Fogel. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. All right, what a pleasure to welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, the one, the only Marshall Fogel. Welcome back. Thank you for having me as your guest today. You are such an eclectic fellow. I don't know how to best introduce you. You're known for your baseball uh, card collection, but I know you as a prominent Denver Jew and attorney. How would you describe yourself? Well, I enjoy adventure. I I like uh, collecting sports memorabilia, as you know. I enjoyed uh, dealing with Dick Monfort and the Rockies and, I, and the exhibit that I had at the All-Star Game for the Rockies and the community. I, I One of my adventures is uh, 
joining the Israeli army after I retired from my law practice. Um, as a person of the Jewish faith, I enjoy my time at Father Woody's homeless shelter on their board, the Denver Police Officers Foundation, first Jewish member of the Denver Athletic Club. and uh, But I, I enjoy community, and I enjoy sharing uh, what I have. I'm a big believer God takes care of those who take care of others, and that's how I live my life. Isn't that expression, uh, God takes care of those who take care of themselves? Right, but in doing so, you put community first, and you take care of those that don't have what you have. And I'm very fortunate to be able to have a life where I started from uh, with $200, and my dad and mother are first-generation Americans, and uh, I love the country, and I I was very lucky to be able to practice right. law. Do you listen to any podcasts with regularity? Yes, the Craig Silverman podcast. Well, this one is different because I'm going one guest plus my troubadour, our troubadour, Dave Gunders. But the name of this episode is Marshall Fogel, and I want to get the definitive Marshall Fogel interview out of you, okay? Let's start at the beginning. What's your date of birth? Born January 17th, 1941, the same day. Uh, the 17th of January that uh, Ben Franklin was born and Muhammad Ali, my two favorite friends. Wow, that's good numerology right there. I did not know that. Ben Franklin and Muhammad Ali. And you? And me. You are remarkable. 1941, that was quite a year. It's the beginning of World War II. Do you think that's impacted your life? I think it did. Um now that I'm older, I realize the impact that war has on the world community and how tragic it is. But in light of all that, uh, from the ashes of the war came a great general that I wrote a book about, General Maurice Rose, an Eastside Denver dropout. Well, tell us about your own family. How did they come to Denver? When? Why? My uh, father uh, came from Sosnitz, Poland. Um, Easy for you to say. How do you spell that? I'll leave it to you, Craig. Uh, I can't spell. I, I'm not Polish, but go ahead. It's probably near my family. I call it the Pale of Settlement, but you're more specific. Have you researched this? Have you gone back there? Yes, I've never gone back there, but I researched it. My uh, grandfather came over before World War One, and therefore was separated from my grandmother uh, and my father and his brother, and uh, after the war, my dad came here on the boat called the Manchurian at Ellis Island. And the manifest shows that uh, my grandmother had 50 cents. And my uh, grandfather uh, happened to know somebody in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And that's what brought my father to Denver, Colorado. On my mother's side, my grandfather or her father was born in Romania and came here before World War I as well. And my mother was born in Denver. Uh, right across, she lived right across from the Aladdin Theater on East Colfax. Oh, where the, the pancake, insiders. Where the pancake house was. That's remarkable. And we're gonna, we will get back to that area because we're going to talk about the late Alan Berg who lived in that area, right? And he lived on Adams Street. I went by there the other day. That's coming up, but back to you. But we're not going to forget Alan Berg. It's coming up later next week. Stephen Singular, who wrote a book, about the late Allen Berg, Talk to Death. What a great book that is. But we have you, Marshall Fogel, right now, and we're in early Denver. 
And you're an East Side Denver Jew. My mom was an East Sider. My dad was a West Sider. They called it a mixed marriage, even though they were both Jewish. Did you experience that back in the day? Was there some kind of hey East Side West Side rivalry? Absolutely, and the East Col- uh, Br- the East Colfax Bridge was called the Passover Bridge. If you didn't know that, I didn't know that because if you wanted to go over to North Denver and fight with the West Side Jews, you had to go over the Passover Bridge. So uh, there was a rivalry. Uh, uh, you know, there were West Side Jews called Fishy Sirota and some of those guys, and then we'd meet them in the middle of the East Colfax Bridge and yell at each other, but I don't think we ever hurt each other. Right, and apparently there was some inner dating. Thank God, that's why I'm here today. How did your parents meet? Through my uh, Uncle Irving. Uh, had had known my mother, and she married my father when he was 22, and she was 18 years old. And did it last? Over 50 years. What was their secret? Their secret was uh, my father went to work, came home, dinner was ready. My mother loved raising the kids, playing canasta and mahjong. And eventually she went to work later on when we left uh, the house uh, and grew up. She worked for Paris Hats in Lakewood for a dollar an hour. And then she worked for my cousins, the Zuckermans. They were doctors on Tihon Street in North Denver as uh, a receptionist. All right. You're quite a bit older than me, 1941. Anyway... It's about 15 years. What's that among friends? Let me figure that out. When was it? January 17th, 41. I'm 80 years old. You're 80 years old. My God. And I can still touch my toes. That's nice. And ride horses. That's one of my great adventures. I've been a horseman ever since I'm nine years old. That's fantastic. It's like Ulysses S. Grant, except he didn't live to be 80, but he was a great horseman like you. How did you become a horseman? Well, back in the day uh, when I lived in Park Hill, they had Turner's Riding Academy out in Glendale, Colorado, right off West Kentucky where Home Depot is located. And uh, I learned to ride horses I, uh, when I, before I was uh, about 12 years old. I rode in the National Western Horse Show. I rode three-gated horses. I've ridden cutting horses. I go up to Wyoming and ride at the Hole in the Wall Gang. Well, who, who introduced you to that? My mother. And she was a horse lady? No, she just wanted me to learn how to ride horses. Now, a horse lady probably doesn't sound right. Is it a horsewoman? Come on, my sister rode horses. I should know that. No, my mother just thought it was a good idea for me to learn to ride horses. And there was no—she no, no she never been on a horse that I know of. I think my father, though— I have pictures of him with riding, equestrian riding pants on, so maybe in his day he rode horses. Yeah, my parents really didn't ride, but my sister loved it, and she used to ride along the Highline Canal. We know old Denver, but you know it more than me. I can't remember really riding academies in Glendale. Maybe a glimmer of a memory. You know how it is? Denver has changed so much. You still live in Denver. We love you for that. Um. Back to your parents just for another minute. You loved them, right? I mean, very close. They were very traditional, uh, kind of Donna Reed type people. That they had a wonderful marriage, and I have two wonderful sisters, Ladine and Helen Ruth, and wonderful brother-in-laws as well. So we have a very close-knit family. Do you think you've been searching your whole life for somebody like your mother? I don't know. I need a psychiatrist instead of you to answer that question. Some people call me counselor. 
No, I'm just wondering because I grew up in a home where my mom stayed at home, raised us. Then she opened a great Judaica shop called The Three Mavens in Cherry Creek after we were all raised. She did a little something like your mom did. That was the tradition then. But now it's a new world. Women have different aspirations. Some do, some don't. It's a new world. But I wonder if you would have liked somebody sort of like your mother. Well, I, I don't have an answer to that, but I can tell you that I do feel as at my stage in life looking back, I think it's important for there be tr a nuclear family, a traditional values. I believe in faith. I think it's important. I think our everybody's culture should be a, a wonderful uh, area for them to remember. I'm very proud of my culture, and I pass it on to my children. I'm sure you do as well, Craig. Well, I do the best I can, but I don't know that I'm succeeding, and I know that I'm not as Jewish as my dad. Well, I'm as Jewish, but I'm not as knowledgeable. I'm not as observant. My dad could lead a minion. He said Shiva after his dad died, after his brother died. You know, I, I haven't been a good Jew like that, and I struggle with it, especially during the pandemic. Help me. Well, I think the experience I had when I was 68 years old, I joined the Israeli Army boot camp and went to uh, uh, a boot camp in in, uh, in Israel by the Gaza border. And, uh, and when I saw how proud these young Jewish kids are that are in the Israeli Army, they're uh, descendants of the Holocaust victims and how vibrant Israel is. And I think as a person of the Jewish faith, I've learned that you can't have a Jewish faith without an army. We proved it with King David. We proved it with King Solomon. And, and you know, I think uh, today religion in its traditional sense has kind of gone by the boards, you know, going to church or going to synagogue or temple. But the culture survives, and that's important whether you're Catholic, Protestant, Greek, Orthodox, or whatever it is. Hold on to your culture. It's a beauty and a wonderful thing to have. Right, but let's talk about our people, the Jewish Faith, the people, the culture. I have great pride. I mean, Max Fried pitching the winning game in the World Series is shut out the other day. And all the Jews playing in this World Series. I take pride. I was raised that way. My dad would say, did you know this guy's Jewish? That guy's Jewish? This accomplishment? That? Were you raised like that? I was. And uh, you know what's interesting? Our heroes we're Hank Greenberg and Sandy Colfax, but we have a new hero, and we'll talk about it later, General Maurice Rose, yes. son of a rabbi, the most decorated battle tank commander in U.S. military history. Yes, I love that, but uh, what I'm talking about is our pride in being Jewish. I don't think it survives without the religion, maybe for a little while, but it's the religion that keeps our people going. And without that, there will be intermarriage and a loss of observance and I don't know. How does that work out? Well, I'm spending my time on that issue as well. I'm working with the Anti-Defamation League and Temple Sinai and Temple Beth Evergreen to put together a podcast so that we can reach out to young Jewish uh, people, uh, students, for instance, so that they can be more attached to their religion, their culture, their tradition, and their family. Nice. What a worthy goal. I like it. So... Have you always had Jewish pride, or did it accelerate when you went to Israel? I always had Jewish pride. Listen, 
I used to fight all the time because I was Jewish. So my dad taught me boxing lessons. I learned to wrestle, and I became a tough Jew. Nice, nice. And have you encountered much anti-Semitism in your life? Yes. Explain. Well, I ride horses up in Wyoming, and I belong to the Hole in the Wall gang. And there's about it's a real exclusive bunch of guys. Uh, we have uh, Marty Cole for the Sensei and Karate Kid, and Cobra Kai. He's a Russian Jewish kid, and uh, there's you know, and there's a few of us up there. And we ran into some anti-Semitism in the group, but we got that straightened out. More so in the past than today. Today, people uh, say to me, gosh, uh, we're so proud to, to know you. I mean, we think the Israelis are great people. I get more positive out of being Jewish than I did when I was a child and grew up with you know, a lot of anti-Semitism, but I don't feel that is as prevalent today. Uh, I'm treated as a assimilated Jew in America in a great country. I'd like to feel that, too, but we will get to anti-Semitism, where it comes from, uh, maybe a little politics, but I want to stay away from that right now because you brought up Sandy Koufax. I think Max Fried idolized Sandy Koufax growing up in San Diego. Didn't you think that was cool, uh, a Jewish pitcher facing a Jewish batter in the World Series? Yeah, I did, and then also the right fielder for Atlanta, Jock. Peterson. He's Jewish as well. Correct. And so uh, uh, it's happened before with Ken Holtzman, Sandy Colfax, and and uh, the Sherry brothers. And but they say they didn't face each other. And the Sherry converted to Judaism after he played, sort of like Rod Carew, who wasn't in a lot of World Series. But they say this was the first matchup. I don't know. What do you think? I'm, I, uh, I've heard it wasn't, but I, I'm not sure. But nonetheless— just, uh, it's hard to who to root for, Max Fried or, or Alec Bergman. But those guys are great players. And along with all, I think the Atlantic Braves, what they did to draft, you know, find new players in the middle of the season, I think that's a story as well. Right. And it's a story that the All-Star game was moved from Atlanta and then Donald Trump showed up for the game the other night, did the tomahawk chop. But we're going to get to that maybe later because let's talk about baseball and why you love it. And how is it that a, a Jewish kid from Denver becomes the preeminent baseball card collector in the world? Well, it's not only cards, it's memorabilia. So, right. uh, you know, it's uh, it's an honor to have a world-class collection. It was an honor to, I exhibited Yankee Stadium Museum and different museums, sharing my collection with communities all over the United States. But more so in answer to your question, um, I loved baseball as a kid. I was a, a second-string catcher. I never, I played softball as a catcher. Uh, I uh, my idol, along with others in my generation, was no other than Mickey Mantle, uh, a, a kid from a small town that get to play center field for the New York Yankees. I consider him one of the greatest players that ever played the game. I I happen to own. The most valuable sports card being the 52 Tops Mickey Mantle that was on display at the All-Star Game. And why is it the best? Why is it the most important card? Part of it's the way Mickey looks. Am I right? If I look like him, I don't think I'd ever get married. <laughs> because he was so uh, handsome and full of confidence? 
Right, and you know, a lot of people don't know that Mickey Mantle almost lost his leg to spinal meningitis, and he's also abused by his aunt sexually. So he he had a very difficult life. He's named his father named him Mickey after the famous Detroit Tiger catcher Mickey Cochran. So um, you know, when you're 19 years old and you play for the New York Yankees, that's pretty amazing because you can't find that happening today. I've always loved the name Mickey. I'd say the first sports hero as a kid, you know, Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mantle. And I was a little kid hearing him in the World Series. Again, you would be about 20 when I'm five, but that was his heyday when you were probably in college. It was. You know, he came up in 1951. But, you know, I want to make sure the fans out there know that I met Mickey Mantle in New Jersey on the boardwalk. And we sat down for couple hours in a bar in a hotel and believe me he's the greatest nicest most wonderful person uh unlike some ball players that are kind of nasty mickey mantle you know for all you mickey mantle fans he's he's a he you would love him if you could have met him before he passed away this is how big of a mickey mantle fan i am is that when my wife and i got married november 26 1994 we got on a plane the next day and we flew to new york yes i was going to be a guest commentator on court tv and uh, my wife liked that because she knew who she married but we stayed at the San Moritz, at the bottom of which is the restaurant called Mickey Mantle's, right off of Central Park. Do you know this spot? Because that was the first place we dined on my honeymoon. I got a great Mickey Mantle restaurant story for Please. you. If you walk in his restaurant when it was open, the first thing you saw was his 1968 Mickey Mantle home jersey and, and uniform pants signed by him. I own that. And the story how I got it, it was owned by Barry Halper, uh, who had a great baseball collection. He's since passed away and sold off his collection at Sotheby's. And I called him up and I, I said, uh, I'd like to buy that Mickey Mantle uniform signed by him. He said, okay. And I bought it and I own it today. And it was on display at the All-Star Game uh, this summer. Now, what year did you do that transaction? Back in the 90s, but I don't have the exact year, but... It was do you think the, it was after I saw it on my honeymoon, 1994? Yes. Okay. So you would have seen it in his nice. restaurant. Isn't that a great oh, story? What a small world. Yeah. And I want to mention about Sandy Colfax. I've met him twice. And one time he was here at a show here in Denver. And uh, another great guy. Uh, I consider him one of the greatest modern league baseball pitchers of all time. So does everybody else. The last time he signed autographs he was in Chicago, Craig. And it was at the convention center. And there was all kinds of sports heroes there where you could get their autographs. Only with Sandy Colfax did the line go out of the convention center and around the, the whole convention center to get Sandy Colfax's autograph. But why the last time? He's a very introverted kind of person. He, he's a hell of a golfer, by the way. I know you are as well. He was a basketball player in Cincinnati as well. Right, and he went to Columbia University for a short time to be an architect. Isn't that where Lou Gehrig went? Lou Gehrig went there, and his mother used to clean fraternity houses. And uh, when he decided to go for the Yankees, she was brokenhearted because she wanted him to be a college graduate. You know, Lou Gehrig was the only child of the Gehrigs. He, the, the family lost uh, a son or a daughter. I don't remember. You know, in those days, some of the babies didn't live very long. But he was the only child. 
What a story. And I'm sure that uh, Mickey Mantle, that chain, the New York Yankee chain from Gehrig and Ruth to DiMaggio to Mantle, did you ever meet Joe D? No, but Joe D uh, was in Denver. You know, they used to have old-timers games. Right. And he always wanted to be uh, uh, introduced last as the greatest living ball player. That's And he'd always hold his hands up as if he were Jesus Christ. I'm not kidding you. He had it down how to do this stuff. Oh, my goodness. So he demanded that they introduce him that way, and then he came out kind of humble? or No, he raised more. his hands, you know, like, like, like Jesus. I mean, that's the way he, you know, he was a interesting guy. Uh, uh, you know, he had a son who was a homeless person, and when Joe died, they had to find his son in San Francisco. Nice-looking guy, dressed him up, and uh, he went to his father's funeral. Joe, for the over the years, tried to get his son, you know, to like him again. You know, there was a situation with where they didn't get along, but it never worked out, and his son and ended up in a very tragic lifestyle oh, and passed, passed away shortly after Joe uh, passed away as well. That's darn shame. I mean, there's so many stories. Don't I remember from Mickey Mantle book I read that they had to rush to Colorado once to Denver because of a health concern? Uh, I, I think he had some he had some affiliation with Denver, and they needed the hospital treatment here. It could have been. I'm not familiar with that story. I'll get you that story, but you're the baseball expert. And on families, tell everybody how many children you have. I have two sons and a daughter, and... Uh, my son, Nick, works for Berg Simpson Law Firm. He's a partner there. And my other son is a real estate broker and does well. And my daughter owns five franchises with another person in Santa Barbara, California called Power, Power, Core Power Yoga. So I have wonderful children, four grandsons and two granddaughters. Now the names you got to pick. Nick, that's like Mickey. I thought about naming my kid Mickey, but my sister stole it from me. When I grew up, I had an imaginary friend named Mickey Hanky Noodle. But Nick, where did that come from? Uh, I just liked the name. It really didn't have anything and uh, to it. It just uh, liked the sound, Nick Fogel. And he played baseball for uh, Highlands Ranch. He was a catcher as well, like his father. Right, so why not name him Mickey like Mickey Cochran? I, like I said, and then for my second son, I said, I'm going to name this kid Tiger Kobe. Because I like golf, I like basketball, I love baseball too. But Tiger Kobe, what could go wrong? I started calling him Little TK. And fortunately, my wife was smarter. She said, no, we're going to name him Sam, Samuel. And that's, we have a Samuel. And it's just interesting, but when you bring up Mickey, a deliberate decision by Mickey Mantle's dad, and it worked out, maybe that's the way to go. Wouldn't you have loved it if your son Nick would have played I don't know, about 12 years for the Yankees? I would have been there to watch it. I know. My kids played a bit too. But uh, what's the secret to being a grandpa and all of that now that you're 80 years old? What do you want uh, to say to the next generation? I'm sure you say it all the time, but these are you've had quite a life. Well, what do you advise your grandkids? Well, to be to love them. And to enjoy watching them grow up, and uh, you know, I I, uh, I think there's a reward for being a grandparent, 
and watching the, your grandkids grow up because a couple of things happen. It reminds you of what you did for your kids, but it also reminds you what you wish you would have done if you hadn't been working so much during your lifetime. Uh, you want them to be healthy. You want them to have good values. Uh, you, you can't wait to see them. You love them when they come and grab your leg and tell you, I love you, Grandpa. I mean, how can you beat stuff like that? Uh, unconditional love. That's why I have dogs, and it's nice they're in our studio. They can tell you're a dog guy, too. You must be. Are you? Horses, dogs, all love, of it? Love animals and love to treat them well. You know, a dog will love you, but a horse runs away from you. For some reason, you always want to put your arms around a horse and have them lick your face. But that's not what horses do, usually. Um, they're smarter than you think. And people that think they can ride horses, let me tell you, uh, it takes a long time to learn how to handle a cutting horse or a, a horse without getting hurt. You know, that's a perfect segue to a couple of guys I want to talk about. Maurice Rose, we've had the honor of talking about him before. My two boys, Ben and Sam, born at Rose Hospital. So was I. There was no Rose Hospital back on January 17, 1941, but I bet you would have wanted to be born at Rose if you could have. I was born at a real nice Catholic hospital called Mercy Hospital down there by City Park. See, it's been torn down now, but I remember uh, uh, even going there as a kid. They had nuns dressed as nuns, and uh, but th that's long ago. I like you for a lot of reasons, but you have a similar interest to me. I love Denver history. I love Jewish history. And you're a great storyteller. You put it all together to pursue the story of Maurice Rose. There was some mystery around his death and his circumstances. You solved it all like the great prosecutor, the great trial attorney you were. I just love it, but do I have you nailed right? What is it with you in history and especially World War II history? What attracts you? Well, I've always enjoyed history. I have to be honest, I was not a good student. I don't do well in structured environments, you know. But uh, his, I, even, I mean, I took remedial math, and I never was good at science, but I always liked history, and uh, and I always had a collector mentality. You know, I collected comic books, and, and we used to trade uh, cards. Like, they had pictures on them, like horses and scenery. So I had a collector mentality, and putting that together with uh, baseball, uh, I collected baseball cards as a kid, and I liked baseball. So later on in my life, and we can and talk about that. And wouldn't you agree, in terms of history, if you love sports and you love history, there's just no comparison to baseball because of the richness of its documented history. Well, putting history and baseball together, and that's why I brought that up uh, when, a few minutes right. ago or seconds, is because baseball is history. And let me tell you uh, and your fans out there why. You know, back in the day, baseball started probably around in the 1820s in America, and there were municipal ordinances that it was against the law to play baseball on Sunday. It was considered a bad thing to do. But after during the Civil War, the— uh, uh, the uh, baseball was brought to the uh, Southern war prisoner war camps, and they used to play. And then after the war, the first professional team started the 1869 Reds. So why am I telling you this? Because people lived 
based upon their culture. And their, the Polish had a neighborhood, the Italians, the Jews, the Catholics, blah, blah, blah. And it turned out that baseball brought all the fans together. And they got to know each other. So the right of assembly was baseball, rooting for a common purpose, rooting for the home team, business associations, friendships. It really was the start of American assimilation. And that's an historical fact. Even though it didn't include blacks at the start, you first had to mix up some other people and then the blacks came later? You know, you know what's interesting about the blacks is they were ter- they were the jockeys in the old days when they used to have horse racing, and when they had bicycle racing, they were the best bicycle racing, and then they did play base- professional baseball up until uh, a few years after the Civil War, and then they decided that blacks couldn't play baseball. They didn't let them be jockeys. They didn't let them do all the kinds of sports that that we know they can, they're capable of doing today. So, uh, you know, we go from Moses Fleetwood Walker, the last professional baseball player from the Syracuse team, to Jackie Robinson in 1947. But, uh, you know, we learned a lot. But baseball also was the hero, based on the singular hero. Right. And somehow we were talking about Maurice Rose to get there. But I think you were connecting the dots between baseball history and why you decided to tell the story of Maurice Rose. Well, I think the connection is, one, when you consider you know, my, my love for baseball history, collecting, Jewish history, uh, you know, Sandy Colfax, Hank Greenberg, and just my whole background that you brought out today, it all comes together on the value of why I wanted to deal with Maurice Rose. And so I'm willing to, ready to tell the story. Please. Okay. Well, as a little boy, I would go to Rose Hospital to visit, and there was a helmet with two bullet holes in it, in a case in the lobby of Rose Hospital, and a painting of General Rose. And, you know, in my day, young Jewish kids didn't have really heroes. You know, it was... You know, I was Sandy Colfax didn't become a hero until late in the, I mean, in the early '60s. Right. So uh, I always wondered who was, why is the picture uh, painting of Rose and his helmet at the hospital in a Jewish hospital? And my dad never would talk about it, and that fascinated me even more. So I always wondered throughout my my political and uh, legal career. I needed to find out about General Rose. So after I retired, and, and believe me, this research took six years, I wanted to find out what, what, why no one talked about him. Now, had you gone for life events at Rose Hospital? Did you have kids born there? Did you break an ankle? Or I've been a patient there. My kids were born there, so I have a connection in that regard. But didn't you know that Rose was Jewish, or did you wonder who the heck was this guy? From my earliest moment, I remember a picture of him with Eisenhower, and uh, I knew a little something about the guy. There was a question of whether he converted to Christianity, and that's why nobody talked about it. Uh, They didn't want to bring up old stories, leave it alone, Marshall, don't get involved in this. I know what you're trying to do, and you're trying to find out, did he convert? Did he remain Jewish? Was he killed in combat as a Jew? And why would they put a hospital up for a Jewish war hero if there was a question of his, of his Judaism? 
And doesn't he have a cross on his grave? Yes, he does. And didn't he marry a Christian woman? Twice. And so Marshall Fogel raised, I think, sort of like I was, to take pride in Jewish people. Well, was this uh, war general, was he, first of all, how great of a hero was he? Was he really that great? And second of all, was he a Jew? Was he a Jew all the way through? Did he convert? I love the questions you asked. These are precisely why I loved your book. Well, this has been a process. As you know, I just finished volume two of the Rose History book. Um, I'm sold out on Amazon, so volume one has been redone, and volume two, you, I just gave you a copy. It's a beautiful book. I and learned new words. That'll be on, on uh, the uh, Amazon shortly, and it'll be available uh, because we, just to be a side story we'll talk about later, we were able to get a statue of General Rose on the Capitol grounds, but I'll get back to the, what you asked me. And that is, I needed to find out if he was Jewish. And in answer to the, let me answer that now and we'll get into it later. He never converted. And that story of why the cross is on his grave is, is, is an amazing story. I had a lot of struggle getting information because nobody wanted me to find out because they were afraid he might have converted or, and no, and we just leave it alone. Like Jewish people say, don't get involved. Stay stay right. away from it. It could be a Shonda. Yeah. A Shonda would be a shame on the Jews. Yeah. You know? Right. And here's a great Jewish war hero, but he converted to Christianity and he died a Christian. Was that true? He died a Jew. And and so I let, let you let me ask answer your first question Please. and that is was he really a hero? Let me put it to you this way. Grant was to Lincoln what Rose was to Eisenhower. Ooh. A finally found a general who could fight. You know, during World War Two, those that are history buffs, they fired you know, Eisenhower and General Marshall and and Bradley, over 60 generals, even from West Point, because they couldn't fight. No different in the Civil War with all the generals Lincoln went through and and uh, during the war. But Rose could fight. And what Rose was known as the leader from the front. You know, his, Craig, his men loved him so much that after he died in combat, these, these kids that fought in the Third Armored Division for Rose after the war out of their little paychecks raised $30,000 to help build a Jewish hospital in Denver so that black doctors and minorities and Jewish doctors and patients from all religious and cultural backgrounds could be a part of the health care in this city. That's another great story. It is. And Jack Dempsey got involved. The world took notice. And Eisenhower loved Maurice Rose. Am I right? Yeah, Eisenhower came out here and dedicated the cornerstone, even with a, knowing that was, you know, he had a heart problem. And then he came out in March of 1948 again and, and uh, dedicated the opening of the hospital. And in my book, Eisenhower, uh, there's a telegram to uh, Rose's wife outlining what Eisenhower thought of him. General Marshall wrote telegrams. He, he When he was buried in, in, in Germany temporarily, Bradley attended the funeral, Patton attended the funeral, Lightning Joe Collins, the Corps commander, uh, where Rose fought under 
with the Third Armored Division attended the funeral. It was a the lot. It was like a loss of a great war general. And when you consider he was the most decorated battle tank commander, he invented battle tank command warfare in World War II. Not only that, but he negotiated the first surrender of a German army in Africa. In six months, he earned three silver stars. He earned the last one by uh, liberating Palermo, Sicily, and withdrew. So if you watch the movie Patton, Patton gets all the credit. And that's when Eisenhower said, I got my man. For a guy like that to capture Palermo and let Patton get all the credit, that's the kind of general he wanted. Then he goes to um, uh, uh, trains in England for the D-Day invasion. And then one day after the D-Day invasion, Rose plants his boots on the sands of Omaha Beach, and then his real career in Europe starts. Here's a guy who went to uh, uh, Whittier Grade School, El Elbert Grade School, went to East High School, and flunked out, ran away from home, son of a rabbi. Rabbi at Beth Joseph, where I got married, and bar mitzvah. The, 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 where Rose's Bar Mitzvah is on 24th and Curtis, and it's now an art gallery, but the building is still there, Craig. And one of the homes on Emerson Street where Rose lived in uh, uh, as a kid is still there. It's a little row house. It's still there. All the other homes that he lived have been turned, torn down right around where they have the license bureau and five points. Part of his intention to get out of his high school was to fight World War One. am I right? Yeah, he ran away from home, and his mother went and got him and made him come home because he was underage. And finally, at 17, they signed the papers to allow him to serve. So um, to backtrack, why? what what happened for Rose to be to have to deny that he was a Jew? First of all, He's the only Jewish general in World War II. He's the highest-ranking general to be killed in combat as a prisoner of war. Uh, he's the only general where they named a battle after him, the Ruhr Pocket Battle, where they captured the final huge German army of 325,000 Nazi soldiers. It was also a death camp for, the, for minorities as well. And uh, because... In honor of Rose, they call it, instead of the Ruhr pocket, they call it the Rose pocket. That's how much they thought of him. And he could pass for not being Jewish, and when he was shot up, it was sometimes better to just check the Gentile box to be treated like everybody else, huh? Well, the, the, there's a backstory to your, your, uh, your comment, and that is uh, to get to the point. After, when he uh, was a kid— uh, he went to Europe in World War One in Saint Mihiel, France, which was a epicenter of the war in Germany of, uh, against the Allies. He got wounded, and he went to the hospital, and he wrote down that he was a, 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 a Christian, a Protestant. Now there are six hospital records when Rose was in hospitals, where he wrote down Protestant. Cat, Episcopalian, Methodist. He had so many religions written down that even a Christian couldn't do well, all that. Well, I said typical Jew. We don't know the difference. You know, Protestant, <laughs> Methodist, Lutheran, Baptist. Could you pass that test? Probably not. I don't think I could. But he, 
It was hiding his identity. And he wanted to rise through the ranks, and rise he did. That's, you hit the nail on the head. But here's what's interesting. You know, writing a book, the research is a book itself. I mean, first of all, any of the archives at the University of Denver were 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 under wraps. You you didn't they didn't want anybody to look at what's in the box. But I'm on the board at the Rocky Mountain Jewish Historical Society, so I opened up the the secret box. Nice. And that started my research. Here's what's interesting. After he got wounded in World War One, he went to the hospital and put down this the religion that he was not to protect himself because of anti-Semitism, which I wrote about in the army in World War One. But let me get to the point. I there's a genealogist that helped me. She finds an article in the Intermountain Jewish News, but at the time it was called the Jewish Journal. And in the article, he writes his parents. He said, "You know, I want to tell you how I got wounded." He said. I'm in the trenches, up to mud up to my boots, and and I'm, my friends are getting shot, and I'm and I'm waiting to be told by I'm a lieutenant by my commander to get out of the trenches and charge the Germans. So he said, "Okay, get out of the trenches." And you know what I did? This I went. I, this is after he wrote his religion down improperly mm -hmm. at the hospital. I said to the troops, "Shema Yisrael, charge." It's in the article in quotes that he wrote that. So nice. we know that he that was the first clue that he was hiding his identity because he was Jewish and there was anti-Semitism. But to his troops, he else and Shema Yisrael is the holiest words you can say in the Jewish religion. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Yeah, the Shema, how powerful. And then you found some other pretty definitive proof that even toward the end, uh, he was loyal to the faith of his fathers. It had to do with his own sons, as I recall. Yes, uh, 1941 in January, uh, his second son Now, was... wait a second. That's when you were born. Right, but we didn't know each other. Okay. But he was born in 1941, his second son. Maybe I would have known if each other if he would have remained in Denver because... Uh, uh, Virginia, his wife, lived right by the Denver Country Club, right off of Spear Boulevard. And a picture of her apartment is in the book. All right, so January 41, he has a son, and what does he make sure about? He went and got a moil, uh, a, a religious person to, to perform circumcision. And, of course, in the Jewish religion— you know, Abraham circumcised his son, to, which was the entry into the Jewish religion. It's a very holy Jewish tradition, and Rose had his son, Reese, circumcised. It's the original covenant. Correct. Can you, yeah. The first covenant of, with God as a Jewish boy is circumcision. Right, but Abraham didn't have a moil. He had to do it himself. Right, with your kitchen knife. Right. <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I thought I got a good joke off on Twitter because the first Jewish guy was Abraham, so the second Jewish guy would be Isaac, right, his son? And Jacob after that. Right, after that. But uh, then we can talk about Ishmael, who I guess was Hagar's religion. Some, But the first two Jewish guys got the terrible binding. God tells them to sacrifice Isaac, and he takes him, binds him. At the last minute, God calls it off. And you know what happened when Max Fried first 
faced Alex Bregman in the World Series? I, is do, I do not. A sacrifice. A sacrifice fly. <laughs> Only you could. And now that there's a sacrifice was involved. First uh, Jewish encounter. Anyway, um, no, that's so cool about Maurice Rose, but there's more to this story as I learned because we know about D-Day and how important it was. I learned so much by your new book, Volume 2, not just about Maurice Rose, but about cowboy Pete Corlette, another Colorado hero, not from Denver, but Colorado. It's called The Untold Story of the Cobra Breakout, Volume 2, The Normandy Invasion, Gold Edition by Jerry Corlette and Marshall Fogel. It's so cool. Well, before I get to that, there's a little background to finish the story. Please. Uh, not only did Rose do the accomplishments I've already mentioned, but how biblical is this, Craig, for a Jewish general to be the first general, the first person to cross into Germany in World War II? He's the first to cross the Blitzkrieg line, the first to capture a German city, the first to ca liberate and capture the Nazi town of Cologne, the first to shoot down a German airplane in Germany. Uh, it goes on and on and on. And the commander of the most prestigious armored division in World War II. So, it, there, and he also is credited by the Germans as saving the Normandy invasion because he captured the town of Carrington, France, which is between Omaha and Utah Beach. And the Germans had trapped the 101 Airborne there. He rescued them and stopped the Germans from being able to capture Carrington and divide Omaha and Utah Beach and roll up the Normandy invasion. And that's, now, how's that for that's Operation Cobra, right. Because everybody talks about D-Day and the brave people who went up the banks, but they were kind of stuck there because of what I always heard were hedgerows. I haven't been there, but you taught me a new word in your book, bocage. Bocage. I had never heard that word, but now I'm fascinated by it because the Bocage was defeating the Allies, and it was only a Jewish boy from Denver, General Maurice Rose, who figured out how to get out of it. Well, part of that's true, and part of it is there are others as well. For those that don't know, the French don't use fences in that area. They use brush, big high bushes. So when they got on the beaches of Normandy, the tanks couldn't get over these these trenches with the bushes that divided the French farms. So we got stuck there for a, quite a while. And so that Bradley decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to bomb the hell out of out of Germany, the Germans in northern France, and use 500-pound buster bombs and just blow them all up and so we can get the heck out of the bocage, which are these hedge groves, which are the large bushes. So with that said, um, they, they, this is called Operation Cobra, the breakout of Normandy. Rose at that time had a minor role. He had about 6,000 men. At that point, he became, in Italy, he became, when he was in Italy, a one-star general with three silver stars. Now he's the head of a task force of 6,000 men, if, you know, maybe 40, 50 tanks, and he was a flanker for Operation Cobra. His, his job was to make sure that when the, if the Germans try to rescue their army in France, he would be the first to know about it with this small contingency. After the bombing, which didn't really work very well, 
Turns out Cowboy Pete Corlett is the Corps commander. He's a two-star general, and that and he's uh, up there in a town called St. Lowe. But he captures St. Lowe without permission of Bradley. That's what a cow. That's why they called him Cowboy Pete Corlett. He also flunked out of high school, and he's from Monta Vista, Colorado. And I went to school with his uh, nephew Jerry Corlett. So. As a backstory, Jerry's writing a story about General Corlett, and we're friends from law school, and, he, and I'm writing a story about Maurice Rose. He said, well, I think my General Corlett knew your General Rose. I said, no way. I've done spent years researching. I never knew that. Turns out Corlett has a file huge that his uncle saved everything. Funk, his uncle was so good at friends with Eisenhower, he told him how to. Uh, he told him he should run for president. They, 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 it's fascinating stuff. So it turns out, Corlett knew Rose, and here's when the story broke that caused us to write the story of the breakout and the and the war of Villa Bedone, France. To make it short, Rose, in his little contingency, breaks the Seventh Army defenses, the German army. Well, they couldn't believe it. This small group of men, soldiers, broke the German defenses. We got to change the whole operation of Cobra, and and Corlett captures Saint Lo, the, the big center of the German communications in France, and and everything's going haywire with Operation Cobra because these two Colorado guys are beating the hell out of the Germans, and the whole operation has to change because they they, they are doing things they never thought could be they done. Got, they got aggressive. And they defeated the Germans. And for what, a few days, maybe the better part of a week, these two guys got to interact and say, hey, you're from Colorado, I'm from Colorado. Can you imagine that conversation? Let me put it even better. Two Colorado high school dropouts changed the whole war in France. and and Because uh, uh, they were stuck in the bocage. They had uh, made the landing, but they needed to break out, and it was these two Coloradans who showed the way. Well, that brings us to the Battle of Villa Badone, and what happened was, you have to remember, Rose invented a lot about how to use tanks. You know, tanks were not supposed to fight other tanks. They were only to back up the infantry. What did Rose do, and this is important to the volume two, is that he put tanks in the front. He had men right on the tanks. He did so many other things, but the Battle of Villa Badone was important because Rose stopped the German counteroffensive to save the German 7th Army in France. And the way he did it, it they study it in, 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 in war colleges now, how he was able to do it. He trapped the whole third, the whole uh, counteroffensive. Now, these were not untrained tank guys in Germany. These guys had fought on the Russian flint. They had they were they had big Panther tanks. He got them trapped in a saucer depression, called in uh General Quezada, and we'll talk about the uh an um, um, uh, Hispanic who's head of the Air Force that brings a better story too, because we now have a Jewish general and a and a Hispanic general with the Air Force, beating the hell out of the Germans. And, and a Colorado them. cowboy, Corlett. Yeah. And didn't Corlett come up with this plan of how to uh, go after somebody with the story from the sand dunes and luring in uh, 
deer and uh, how to wait for the animals and lure them in? The story, you know, Corlett and, and, and Rose were tremendous horsemen because Corlett was a cowboy, a real cowboy. Uh, and and uh, Rose was in the cavalry. So these guys were super horsemen to begin with. So they had a lot in common in that respect. So Corlett sits down with Rose. It's in the book. and says, you know, in their cowboy lingo that, oh, can you imagine Corlett, the cowboy, saying, now nah, let me tell you something there, Rose. You know, when I was a kid, we'd go out hunting. Now, if you want to hunt a deer, you you can go and chase him. Or you can sit back and wait till the, you put a little uh, salt lip peter out there in the, in, the, in the grassy area there and let the deer come to you. And when you do that, you're going to get you're going to get something for dinner. Now, you got to do the same with them damn Germans. Now, you're just waiting to get them in, you know, you put a little saltpeter out there in that in that depression there and you trap them in that little saucer and you'll do the same thing. And that's how it happened. Isn't that great? Uh, it's unbelievable. And he lured the Germans in and uh, they attacked uh, your book recounts his heroism. Anybody who doesn't have the book, you got to order it. Major General Maurice Rose, the most decorated battle tank commander in U.S. military history. Um, it's a great book, but this is fantastic to introduce cowboy uh, Pete Corlett into it and to work with his nephew. What was that like? Well, Jerry's, you know, Jerry's. Uh uh practiced law in Santa Fe, New Mexico, very successful. In fact, uh, he, I taught him how to dance because he's such a hick. And so we used to go to the Rathskiller down on South Carolina Boulevard, <laughs> and I said, Jerry, see that? I taught him how to two-step because he's a country boy. And I said, see that woman over there? You go ask her to dance. And he said, oh, shucks, I can't do that. And I said, I taught you how to two-step. Now go over there and ask her to dance. He ended up marrying her. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wait, let's back up. How did you teach him how to two-step? Were you his partner? No, I just uh, I gave him a doll, and I said, and I oh, showed okay. him one step, two step, one step back. The Rathskeller. I barely remember some of these places, and that was just fantastic. Now, we wish Maurice Rose had a happy ending, but we know he got shot, buried in Europe, right toward the end of the war, those German bastards. I mean, tell the story. Well, before I do, I want I want our uh, Hispanic friends to know something about Quisada. Please, Quisada uh, was Eisenhower's personal pilot, and and uh, and he's Hispanic, and uh, he really was uh, an incredible Air Force general. And after the war, he became a lieutenant general. He ended up marrying a Jewish girl who was uh, related to the Pulitzer Prize family after the war. He became part owner of the Washington Redskins and started the Civil Air Patrol. He was on uh, one of the board members. So he had a very positive, successful career after the war. The reason he uh, – so there's a whole story in the book that that's part of it. Now, what was your question after I got No, no, that's it. I, I want to go back to the heroism because we didn't quite complete it. You were talking about the saucer, the strategy of Rose. And it's not like his career ended right after he uh, did the breakout uh, from the hedgerows. He he went on to be Patton's top guy. Along the way, you tell an interesting story because Lincoln had to fire a lot of generals. Eisenhower and Roosevelt did. 
But uh, Rose got uh, fired by some other guy after he did that uh, kind of maverick maneuver. And uh, Cowboy Corlett said, no bullshit. We're not going to fire this guy. We're going to promote him. Here's what happened. At the Battle of Villa Badone, the reason Rose ended up under Corlett's command is because after he did the miraculous stuff about breaking the German defenses, he ended up in the 19th Corps sector under General Corlett. Corlett asked Bradley, would you let me have Rose? I need him. Bradley says, yeah, go ahead. He's in your sector. So now they're planning to how to stop the German counteroffensive. So part of it is the backup for Rose, who's now you've got to remember the 3rd Armored Division and the second armored division have the most soldiers, about anywhere from fourteen to sixteen thousand soldiers. So, if you were head of the second, the third armored division, you were head of the most prestigious tank corps in 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 World War II, and they called it the Spearhead, and Rose named it. Second uh, was called. Uh, um, I'll have to think of it in a minute. Uh, I can't remember. That's but, all right. You're 80. It doesn't, yeah, that's the well, first slip-up you've had. And you're 65, and you can't remember. Well, I don't remember, <laughs> but uh, you're the author. Everything I know about more Hell is Hell on Rose. Wheels. Hell the on Wheels. See second armored, and the first armored division was Old Ironsides. There you go. Now you got to take back what you said about no, me. No, <laughs> you're amazing. That's why I want to have you on. And, uh, you know, let's fast forward to the future because I'm going to play that whole YouTube on the back end of this. You were nice enough to send it to me. Maurice Rhodes is a Colorado hero. You've written the book on him, and he's a Jewish Colorado hero, a Denver Colorado hero. Makes me so proud, but you were one of the people to spearhead him being celebrated as such by the state of Colorado. Tell everybody what you've done. Well, there's two short stories. One is I found the painting that was in the hospital in 1948, and it was gone. So I found it in the secretary's office at the Rose Foundation, and we got the painting restored. It's back in the hospital. We, the lieutenant governor was there. We had a big ceremony, and uh, doc, uh, Dr. Edmund Noll, the first black doctor, to practice in a hospital was honored. His son attended it as well, and and it was a big celebration. So during that period of time, I got contacted by somebody I didn't even know, Paul Shaman. He said, we need to put a statue to Rose on the hospital grounds. I said, well, I've, I've had enough. You know, I've written the book, and I'm not doing anything. Well, he convinced me I was wrong. So we teamed up. And uh, how did Paul Shaman become interested? He heard me lecture about General Rose, and he got addicted to it. And he uh, he we decided with his initiative that we would hire the greatest Colorado sculptor, George Lundine, who did the statue of the ball player in front of the Rockies. He's done statues of the library in in Congress. He's, he's we have a lot of great sculptures in Colorado because Loveland, Colorado has the best foundry in the United States for making bronzes. So Loveland is not only known for Valentine's Day, but we have great sculptures, and George Lundin is one of them. Nice. So he did a sculpture, and uh, we 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 and Larry Mizell, one one of my closest, most wonderful guy in the world, uh, was a great help along uh, with 
the artist, myself, and Paul Shaman, and the Speaker of the House, Alan Garnett, and Governor Polis, we got the legislature to unanimously vote in to put a statute of General Rose. Unanimous. Unanimous. Now, you know what's going on with statutes in Colorado. Right. But they couldn't, they, they learned what a hero this guy was. And so we're going to have this beautiful statute, and the unveiling will be sometime, hopefully, this time next year. It's going to be a beautiful statue. And, and if you're was, interested in donating, just call, go to rosemonument.org. I had to get that in, correct? Rose Rosemonument.org. We're going to play the YouTube, which is the entirety of the speeches given on the steps of the Capitol where the statue will be. I think it's fantastic. Now, we didn't touch on his sad death, but toward the very end of the war, after he had helped win everything, tell about the sad demise of Maurice Rose. Well... There's so much to tell even before he got killed, but the book will Go will ahead, certainly... take your time. Well, after he captured the Queen City of Cologne, uh, what's interesting is his corps commander, I love the name, Lightning Joe Collins, and uh, one of his commanders was Gravel Voice Harmon, and we don't do that stuff anymore, but right. you know, these guys were... They are the band of brothers. I mean, they don't make soldiers like they did in World War II. I mean, not that we don't have great soldiers today, but, you know, they were all from cornfields in Nebraska, mining towns from Pennsylvania. You know, the, these kids are 19, 20 years old and flying P-47s and P-51s. These weren't guys that went to the Air Force Academy. The, these were just a bunch of kids that fought in the war and fought for their country. So... um and Maurice Rose was one of them. He had come up from nothing. He they, didn't go through West Point. They called him the Mustang General. And when you're a Mustang General, that you know the Mustang's a wild horse. And so when you when you are called that, you get the you gain the respect of your soldiers because you started as a private. Right. Now, how many privates become generals and and do what he did? I can't think of too many or any at all. So now we're at the bat. Now we're on March 29th, 1940, 1945. Um, and the war is almost over. And the Germans, the Allies are in Germany. And there's called the Ruhr Pocket. Now, the Ruhr Pocket at that time had 325,000 German soldiers there. This is where Ruhr, uh, Krupp Industries made. Uh, tanks and equipment. It's also a horrible concentration camp as well. So this on March 29th, Rose is sitting there with Quisada, a hundred miles away from Peridon, which is where the Ruhr Pocket is. It's Peridon, Germany. And Lightning Show Collins is there, and they're all sitting around. Now the Brits, the Polish, Free Polish, the French. Uh, all the Allies had surrounded the Ruhr Pocket except from the south. They didn't have enough soldiers to enclose the circle. So they're sitting in a room, and so Lightning Joe says, uh, Rose, you know, we need you to go up to the southern part of Peridone and close the gap, the circle, but it's 100 miles away, and you got 14,000 soldiers. If you stretch your... Third Armored Division in one line is ten miles long. You got medics, you got POWs, you got six soldiers, you got food, tanks, equipment, bullets, 
all kinds of stuff. There's no way you're going to make it. And so Quisada says, I'll bet you a case of scotch you'll never make it. And Rose says, I'll be there in 24 hours. Can you imagine and it did 100 it. miles in 24 hours with all that going on and fighting Germans? And he got to, to Peronone in 24 hours. It now is the world's record for any tank Corps to ever do that, and nobody's ever done that since. They can't. Nobody could believe that he could do that. That's what. A, now you ask me if, when you look back, was he a great general, Craig? You can answer that question, and everybody listening has no question he was the world's greatest, and he deserves the everything. Goat, the greatest of all time. I think he's the greatest tank commander of all time, and you can put him up against Patton any day you want, and I'll guarantee you it won't even be close. Let's imagine he never got killed. And you, I can tell you, you don't really like talking about his death. In the book, it's there. Oh, but, I'll talk about it. Whenever. But it's just so sad to me, and it's part of what attracted you to destroy the helmet with the bullet holes and all of that. Well, guess what? I found the helmet in a warehouse in Fort Benning, Georgia, and I'm glad you brought it up because the helmet is now on display in a place of honor at the new U.S. Military Army Museum in 20 miles out of Washington, D.C. that just opened this year. And it's, just, it's, it's, it's one of the great artifacts they have is the helmet. And it says that this is the helmet of the great Jewish General Maurice Rose of the 3rd Armored Division. And I also got his painting in a room dedicated to him at Fort Benning, Georgia. I mean, I, I'm so happy to revive to, to revive the legend that that is truly a great general's legend of, of history in World War II. And wasn't it, and everything I know really is from reading your book, but he was hustling to get somewhere else during the war. He got isolated, surrounded by Germans, and uh, he, was, he knew that he was surrounded, and they shot him anyway, even though he, he was willing to surrender. Well, here's what happened, just the short of it. Uh, once he got to Peridone, they the Allies didn't realize, nor did Rose, that the, they thought the Germans really didn't have a lot of equipment. Turns out there were some big Tiger tanks from the Russian front with experienced uh, Nazi soldiers, and that changed the whole course of the capture of the Ruhr Pocket on the, from the south. So Rose had was had to split his task forces up. And one of them was the well-born task force, and he couldn't find them. So Rose wasn't the kind of guy to have an entourage. You know, he had a jeep, a gun, you know, some some equipment, you know, motorcycle guys. And he went looking for well-born because he, he wanted to follow well-born into the rear pocket. Well, well-born got shot up, his task force, the well-born survived. So as Rose is looking for him, he spots some tanks, and he said, so his driver said, well, I think those are Allied tanks. And they go up to him, and it turns out they're Tiger tanks, mm -hmm. and they trap Rose's Jeep between a, a, a plum tree and a Tiger tank. A, a, a Nazi soldier gets up from the turret of the tank with a, a schmeiser, it's a, like a pistol machine gun. Rose raises his hands, his two partners, uh, Shansi and, and um, uh, Billinger, are raising their hands, and they remove their revolvers, the two other officers, from their shoulder. 
because they use shoulder holsters. Rose, on the hand, used a forty-five caliber, but he liked to wear it around his waist. So the, the German is talking German, and Rose, who knew Yiddish, which is partly German, says, what do you want? What do you want in Yiddish? In the meantime, Rose figures he's got to withdraw his gun from his belt, and as he reaches down, the Nazi shots shoot, shoots him 14 times. The helmet goes up in the air, so those two bullet holes are not didn't kill Rose. They, it was from machine gun bullets when the helmet fell off of Rose's head, and that killed him. And that was a horrible, horrible Right before thing. At the end of the war, right? Yeah, the war ends in April, and this is uh, uh, March 30th, 1945. What if Rose would have lived? What do you think he his would have life been, would have been like? He would have been a four-star general in Korea. He would have been, he would have been a big deal in Korea. He would have been uh, uh, probably on the Joint Chiefs of Staff if there ever was one. He, you know, there's no way he wouldn't have been uh, a, a big deal in Korea. Do you think he would have gone into politics? He's sort of a quiet guy in a way. He, you know, uh, so Joe Collins said, you know, one of the criticisms I have of Rose is he would always stay too close to the front, and he'd never wear medals on his uniform. That was the only criticism. So he was. He was a quiet. He did his job. Uh, tell everybody what he looked like. Well, what the soldiers tell me he looked like, uh, you couldn't take your eyes off of him. He was handsome as hell, tall. Uh, I guess if you put him up against Elvis Presley and Clint Eastwood, you might think that he might be right up there with those good-looking guys, Cary Grant. He just was a handsome, and, and, and he was always well well-groomed. I'll tell you the kind of guy he was. I talked to a soldier who was in the mud in in France, and Rose sees him. He says, you need anything? And this is Rose, a two-star general. He says, yeah, I'm hungry. Rose goes back and gets some food and gives him something. Here's the kind of guy Rose was. There were two times when there's a bridge, with, and, and you usually have a Soldiers look for mines on a bridge so you can cross it without blowing up, the bridge blowing up. Can you imagine all of his soldiers watching him? Rose gets in his Jeep with his driver, gets to the bridge, gets out of the Jeep. His driver follows him, and he walks across the bridge himself looking for the mines. Now, how many generals would do that today? Do you feel like you've written the definitive book about Maurice Rose? Um, I did. And then this comes up with the volume two. I think I'm... 90% there. I, I think I've written a story, which is uh, now that volume one and two will be on Amazon. It takes a little while, but in a couple of weeks, I think I'll have the books there for people to, to get on Amazon under Marshall Fo under General, uh, Maurice Rose's book, Fogel. That's how you look it up. Um, all the profits, by the way, Go to charity. Go to the Beck Archives at the University of Denver. There's no no money's being made on You this. don't need any more money, as I understand it, right? No, after I counted yours, I think I do. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> here's what shines through, and I think it's a beautiful thing. You love Mickey Mantle, am I right? The one of the best. And you love Maurice Rose. One of the best. Do you think those two guys would have gotten along? Have you ever thought about that? You know why they would have? They're both humble, and they both uh, uh, were successful. They both came from 
backgrounds of of poverty in a sense, hard times. You know what they are? They're the American dream. And that's what this end of this interview should be. You know what? This is a lesson for anybody that learns this. One, don't feel sorry for yourself. Two, get off your ass and go to work. Three, raise a family and, and be thankful you live in America. That's the best way I can say it. Well, that kind of brings us to politics. We just had a pretty big rebuke of Joe Biden and the Democrats, and people think he's gone too far to the left. What do you think is going on in America right now, and are you worried? I think, uh, you know, I, I lived through the Vietnam days, you know, with all the, and the Black Panthers and the Jewish Defense League and SDS. And, you know, sometimes the way I look at life, Craig, if the earth were flat, if you're too far to the left and you're too far to the right, guess what happens? You'll fall off. If you stay in the center, things seem to work out. You know, democracy is a messy business. And I think what we're trying to find is, is the footing. Uh, I, I think we're a, divi we're a very divided nation, no question about it. I think that if we go back to the values of the Ten Commandments and we teach our kids to love instead of hate, and we learn to, like I said, God takes care of those who take care of others. If we live with a value system, no matter, it has, it's not religious. Values are values, no matter who you are then I think you're going to create the country that we all love and respect. You know, democracy grows. And it was uh, Eisen, uh, was it Reagan that said, you know, democracy could only be something like a day old. you got to protect it every time. Right. Um, I think, every generation has to protect it. I think we got to learn that separation is dangerous. Community is everything. And we got to learn to live together without all this going on. I think... I think we're going through some hard times, but I also think this election kind of proves that maybe we're coming back to the center a little bit, and we all got to learn to get along better. I love your memories of Mickey Mantle, and I've read biographies about him. Uh, fantastic. But then uh, Maurice Rose, I've fallen in love with him through uh, your writing. And a guy who I never met in person, but I followed him on the air, and to a degree, I emulated him as both a lawyer and doing some talk radio, is the late Alan Burke. And I read a book about him by Stephen Singular, who will be my guest next week, called Talk to Death. And I know you knew Alan Burke, and uh, he was quite a character. Tell, tell me what you knew about Alan Burke. Well, first of all, I hope everybody listens to your next broadcast with this author because Alan Berg uh, is deserving of being a legend here as well. You know, he and Peter Boyles were also very good friends. And Alan was truly a 60s guy, but he uh, probably one of the best radio broadcasters in Denver, at least that in my opinion. I remember him owning a sh custom-made shirt shop on uh, down on downtown Denver. Alan always dressed to the nines. He had a bundle of hair on his head. He was skinny as a rail, and and he had a gift of gab. Best I could say to to you, Craig, is if you ever had the opportunity to meet Alan Berg, you would have loved the guy. I mean, he, you know, you know what's funny about him. Uh, you, every, I'm sure they'll talk about how he got murdered, but was but the truck drivers of America when he got killed. They lost their best friend. Every truck driver would listen to Alan right. Berg. He had various assignments. And the thing is, 
I feel like I knew him because I listened to him. Just like people might think they know me because they've listened to me, but I never interacted with him. And uh, he would frustrate me because he would talk about being Jewish, yet on Yom Kippur he would work. And uh, one memorable Yom Kippur, he said, well, why do people hate the Jews? And I'm thinking, gosh, I'm not that fond of you because you're making it tough on Jews who are observing Yom Kippur. That's the way I was raised. My dad said, it's like Sandy Koufax. He wasn't a religious Jew, but he didn't pitch on the high holidays because he wanted to make it easier for other Jews who were observant. How do you feel about stuff like that? Well, I think culture is important in our country. And Jews have a culture. Irish have a culture. African-Americans have a culture. Greeks have a culture. Italians, everybody has a culture. And that's the richness of our country, Craig. So I'm very protective of the Jewish culture because I want people to love it. You know, it's like, you know, uh, food. There's African-American right. food. There's Arab food. There's, I mean, all that makes America a fiber of assimilation. And it's, you know, it's part of getting along. So yeah, the, I, 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 maybe I'm snobbish about it, but some people work on Yom Kippur, some don't. What about you? What's your attitude? To each his own? Well, I, I don't work on Yom Kippur. I mean, I can't speak for others, but uh, it, to me, it's out of respect, to be honest. It's the Day right. of Atonement. You know, Catholics have to atone every day. We Jews just have to do it right, once a year. Wrap it in one, one day. No, <laughs> but, but I, I got a little off on that, but I've talked to Judith Berg, his late wife. I don't know if you knew Judith. I, I agree, and uh, she told me a lot of things about Alan Berg and his relationship with Peter Boyles, and I'm not sure it was all that close. You know, they were competing against each other at the end, and uh, Boyle's a very competitive son of a gun, and I bet Berg was too. Well, what I, and I know Peter, and, and when you listen to uh, his eulogies after Alan died, uh, I don't, maybe there was some grace in his voice because he really uh, adulated Berg. Uh, and so I never heard anything negative. Now, maybe, of course... No, he does, he does adulate Berg now as he was great and all of that. But back then they were competing and Berg got to be on 60 Minutes ahead of Boyle's famous episode with Morley Safer, stuff like that. I'm just saying you should read this book, Talk to Death by Stephen Singular, because he explores all this and the Jewish part. You knew Alan Berg. I didn't. Uh, Judith says he was very Hamish. You know, she comes from a prominent Jewish family and from the East Side, like you. And uh, he came by with his fellow Jewish fraternity boys from CU. That's how they met. Was he very Jewish in the way he approached things? My memory of it is that he, that's why he got killed. I know. I so know. So the answer is yes. I understand that, but I thought that might be ironic. Maybe that's somebody who didn't really want to be Jewish, or was he obviously Jewish, kind of Ob like I am? I never hide from it. Why would I? He was obviously Jewish. He made it a big point when he took on the, the those bad actors. Well, I know it. I know it. And some of it came the way through that uh, prairie uh, reporter, and they printed the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and— Pat Schroeder said we shouldn't advertise anymore. 
I, I've read just about this. The Primrose Cattle Association, maybe you know that as a horseman. There was some anti-Semitism, which tends to come up, like you mentioned, in Wyoming or Montana or Idaho. And you read the book about these right-wing nuts who got together in the order, and they killed Alan Burke. It was awful right there, 1400 block of Adams Street. I didn't even know the guy, but it 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 impacted me. I was a young deputy DA in the same office you had worked in. It's your town, Denver, for people to come and kill somebody because they're Jewish, assassinated talk show host. I think it's one of the worst crimes that ever happened in Colorado. I agree. What do you remember about that day and situation? I was, two things, I was shocked, but I also became more more militant about putting up with this crap. As a, as a, I, I'm, I'm a tough Jew. That's what I call myself. I'm not a big guy, but I'll tell you, I don't put up with it. And and um, you you know you can't win prejudice wars by throwing money at these at charities and making you know trying to make people happy. Uh, you know if if you want to combat anti-Semitism, boots to the ground. You got You got You can't uh, appease hatred. You can't appease it. You got to fight it on the same terms that they fight you. And that's my premise for the way I t- take it on. You know, someone p- wants to play with me on the on the playground of anti-Semitism, let me tell you something. You better watch out. And there are a lot of people like me that feel the same way. Don't oh, mess with oh, me. I, now this podcast is going to get good. And no, we're not going to talk about women or marriage or anything like that because— I think you've done wonderful with your children, your grandchildren, your life. I admire you so much, and we both are proud Jews. And uh, I like to think I'm a Jew who will stand up too. And we both hate anti-Semitism. It's there in abundance. But I think you and I might disagree on where the more profound threat of anti-Semitism is coming from right now. It's coming from the left and the right. I agree. I agree. Like it always does, right? It's like yeah. the the Crusades. We're getting uh, lambasted by both sides. It's not just the you know white supremacists. You know, let me tell you, there's plenty of crap going on on the left too. And open up your eyes, those of us in the middle. You got to watch your both sides of your face. Right, but you got to make sure that the leadership doesn't get in bed with the radicals. Right? I mean. Uh, McGovern was way too far left. You wonder why we got Nixon? Because McGovern embraced some of these things. But I worry more about the right, and I worry about Donald Trump. And I do because he embraces conspiracy theories, which is the enemy of the Jewish people. And that's where I have a problem, and I think that's where you and I might disagree, and I respect your opinion, so I'll let you talk on it. I. You know me, I'm keeping my political views to myself, and I'm going to let you do whatever you want. All right. But I, but I, am, uh, I, I respect just your program, but I keep my politics way close to my chest. All right, what about Alan Berg? Don't you think that he would have stood up to Donald Trump? He would have said, come on, that guy, he's, he, he would have, he would have uh, gone against Trump. I, I'm pretty sure 
I know Alan Berg well enough to know that. And I'm old enough not to get involved in this conversation. No, I appreciate <laughs> I, that. I, That's I, a, I love everybody. I want to be everybody to be you happy. You taught me that new word, <laughs> bocage, and I think that's enough. We've been going for the better part of an hour and a half, but I do want to give you a chance to sum it all up. We'll do it again when you're 90 for sure, but this episode named Marshall Fogel, I feel like we left so much out. You were the youngest deputy DA. The way you got that job in Denver was amazing. You tried almost 30 murder cases in a matter of uh, several years. Let me just go to the law part because you are in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Or, or let me do it like this. Do you remember This Is Your Life? It's a little before my time, but not yours. With Ralph Edwards, people would come on and say, and now here's this guy stepping up. I mean... If I put on that show, I'd like Sandy, I'd like Mickey Mantle to come out, Sandy Koufax, Maurice Rose, but then I'd like people who know you better. I get your mom and your dad. Is there somebody else I should really get? Is there a lawyer or somebody who'd say, God, you should have seen Marshall then and there? Well, I, a lot of my practice is devoted to first responders, and I think that's relevant today. Uh, I have such respect for health care people, for uh, our law enforcement people. Uh, I, I know I've done so much work with, with sheriffs, police, first responders. I've done a lot of work for the Indian community, the American Indian community. Right. I, I've done a lot of work with minorities. So I've spread my wings very broadly, and I think that – uh, when I look back on my career, my my position in life was to care about everybody. You know, I don't. You know, I I want people to enjoy the American dream. I don't want people to hate police and hate firemen and hate minorities or hate Jews or hate Catholics or all, all this stuff. We are so angry today. And I didn't live my life, and I know you don't either. I live my life by looking what's best in people. And I think one of the way I'd like to end this is, you know what? Um, look for the best in people. And, you know, if you're a person of faith, you got to believe in grace. Grace is forgiveness. Now, some people deserve to be punished. But when people make mistakes and apologize, and they're not serious mistakes like killing people and doing bad things, give them a break, you know? Don't this cancel culture is dangerous and and you know when people are young and make say things they shouldn't have grace and put grace in your life learn to love people and not hate them and that's how I'd like to tell people how I live my life gosh that's the best i'm proud to have you as a friend and thank you for honoring me with this interview i heard this saying that friends are like fine art or a collectible, a great baseball card. What do you do with fine art and with a great friend? You put them in their best light, right? Correct. Put the best light on them. I, You are in beautiful light. I took a picture of you here. I'm going to post it up. I'm getting a little choked up and it's just because we've been talking for a while. But I really am honored, Marshall Fogel. I admire you, what you've done with your career in the law, raising great family, your business acumen, I don't know many people who have done it so well and so successfully. And now you're as sharp as a tack at age 80, and you're still telling wonderful stories. We're going to run that YouTube, 
and everybody gave good speeches. Jared Polis on down, but the guy who steals the show is Marshall Fogel. Well, in return, and I say this from my heart, I love you, Craig. You've done a lot of great work for a lot of people in your in your life, in your in your law practice, and in your. Uh, being on radio, I remember all the days that you 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 invest like an investigative reporter with Dan, and um, I think people will remember you as well. Well, thank you, Marshall. Thanks for the interview. Thanks for your time. Thanks, everybody. Craig's Lawyers Lounge with Marshall Fogel. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end of life planning lawyer. And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're to, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like, I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book and appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Okay, Troubadour, we are on the air. I hope you are ready, and I hope you are aware of what today is. I'm ready, and it's my birthday. Friday, November 5 is when we are recording this. It's not just your birthday, it's something else. My, it's my daughter's birthday. And, and what else? Some other friends' birthdays that I, that I could say hi to, Gino and Dominique. And um, it's, it's a policeman's day it's love your lawyer day oh close did you know that you sent me something anyway just love your song safe haven we'll get to your birthday but first safe haven what a great song thank you it has all the dave gunders elements which what's number one would you say in all your songs the element you repeat I don't know. You know you know my songs better than it's, I do at this it's point. Sun. You always have it's this the sun, sun in there. It's, it's the, the sun. S U N. And it's always a love song, but it's great. And when I think of Safe Haven, what do you think of? I think of uh respite from the, the difficulties. But that... where where is your safe haven? Home. Home. And Home. what's that got to do with baseball, which Marshall Fogel is talking about this week? 
Um, I don't know. You'll come up with something. Home plate. Home safe run. at home. home safe haven. Yeah. Perfect. Now, when you were growing up, wasn't Mickey Mantle one of your favorites? Sure. Everybody's. Mickey Marshall Fogle owns the most expensive baseball card in the world, plus a bunch else. My God, he was sitting in that very seat that you occupy. Did you check his pockets for any baseball I'm, cards? I'd like to see if anything slipped out, but it's all his. And just like you've got your rich reward, not only are you a fantastic songwriter, your business, give a shout out again. Lookout Renovation. It's going strong. You played a gig in Boulder last week. Tell everybody about that. Well, we played a Halloween gig. It's uh, Cafe Soleil, which is a, a fun little kind of coffee and wine place in um, South in South Boulder. Which band was that? It, this was the Mighty Twisters. And what about the Vipers? How so, are they doing? Doing great. Tonight, the Vipers are playing at Rockabilly's in Arvada. Y'all come down. That'll be cool. I'll get you in free. Nice. And then uh, you'll sing your heart out. Way to go. You know, that's really something what you do. And you're such a young fella. On your birthday, I got you some things that I think you're going to like. Some of them, you know, are kind of what I like. So I hope you like, like, look right up there on that shelf. Do you see that bag there? Um, I see a plant. No, there's a globe. No, get the plant and get the frosty. Uh, not the plant. Get the oh, bag. I was just thinking about one of okay, these. Okay, now grab it's the bag. It's a chocolate bag. shake. It's a chocolate frosty. And, and Wendy's claims their fries are better than McDonald's. I don't know. How's that taste? And there's a, a spoon and a straw in that bag. For I, don't want to make, I don't want to make slurping sounds on the air. All right, now here's another present for you. Wow. I want you to open this on the air, because I don't want to brag. Just look at that wrapping. It's man wrapping right there. <laughs> it's a bag with some with some wrapping paper on top, and inside, I don't know, it's another bag. Should this one is revealed as Amazon, but I know what's in it. Wow. Let's have a look here. Senior living. No, saver. <laughs> saver living. Oh. Pardon me. See, you got a lot of calls on pardon, your birthday. It's me. all right. Pardon Here me. Here you go. Now, wait. What's, what is this? I'm now? just saying that there's no present that could be greater than that. Really? Open it up. Wow. A gefilte fish maker. No. A skewer for chicken. Turn it around. Maybe you're not reading it right. Oh, Read the name. Johnny Apple Peeler. Whoa. And just, and just in time. Because we have about 150 apples to peel. Right. Now open the other box. Now, then you couldn't quite get open. I, I just want to know if you're going to help. Yeah. I got one for myself, what too. A great We're going to have a contest. This is right. Instead of that apple pie. Oh, and I see it's got a suction um, kind of base where you, it just sucks down onto the countertop. Now open countertop. that. You were lacking wow. this last time we made apple pie. Really? What is it? Just tear into it. All right. I'm Rip doing... it open. All right. Because no present could be greater than that. Oh, stainless steel apple corer. With apple a, grater. With a, with a cleaning brush. How many slices will it make? Well, let's see. Look Just at this right thing. Just right for apple pie. Yeah, it looks per. Oh, man, we're gonna, we've got to employ these sooner than later. We got, we got the apples, we got the tools, and we got the will. Sooner or later, you're going to use that grater. 
on the apples that we have. You're going to core them. You're going to pit them. Let's get back to your song. Sunday. Safe Haven. Sunday. Sunday? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Craig. Very you're generous. This is, these are great presents. Well, it's kind of to help us make great apple pies. I, th- I think I have a little twist on a recipe that's going to enhance things. But back to Safe Haven, as I rhyme, uh, you know, greater with whatever you say later. I noticed throughout the song Safe Haven, I was waiting for what you were going to rhyme Haven with. And you didn't let me down. <laughs> Raven. Hair as dark as it raven, right? It is what right? I've been craving, but at craving? the end, it's like I don't want to deal with a head that has has a cave in. No, a, no, no, a cave. No, no dark, no dark mind to cave in. No dark that mind can go to wrong. cave in. Right, no I dark want mind you to cave my in. safe haven. Right. Beautiful song. Anything else you want to tell us about it, birthday boy? Just that I think I used all of the available rhymes in the song. I think you did too. Way to go. Give a listen. Safe Haven by our troubadour, Dave Gunders, the birthday boy. Happy birthday. And thank you. Thanks for my presence, Craig. stairs are falling in the house where I grew up abandoned long ago and I'm looking for something Shine its rays Though clouds may darken our days Your light comes shining through I never did believe in fate Till I heard those sirens calling Dreaming at your garden gate Turning on you And I'm looking for something
Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Wow, what a trial they had going for the last couple of weeks up in the Greeley Courthouse. Jonelle Matthews, only 12 years old, got dropped off at her home on December 20, 1984. Her dad, a high school or middle school principal, he was out at another daughter's basketball game, came home. Janelle had left a note about a teacher calling in, uh, being sick the next day, so she got home. And uh, the guy who dropped her off said she was safe and sound, but nobody heard from Janelle. She became a missing person, and her body was found many years later, 2019, 20 miles from her home in Weld County, and she had been shot way back when. Stephen Pankey was put on trial for the crime. He made various statements through the years. He may have had a motive. He had a grudge against Janelle's church. He also had a grudge against the guy who dropped her off. So there are a lot of connections, and he started saying things about the case. Was he just a weird guy following a true crime mystery, inserting himself? That was the defense. And Steve Pankey, who's run for governor in Idaho two times, he took the witness stand, my goodness. I prosecuted many murder cases, but it's only in a few where the defendant testifies. And when that happens, it's like the World Heavyweight Championship. It's one-on-one to see if the guy's going to prison for the rest of his life or he might get the better of the prosecutor. 
I heard the closing arguments in the case, and I went back and watched the cross-examination of Stephen Pankey. And of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. and as a former prosecutor for 16 years, I thought about what I would have done, how I would have handled things. And speaking of mistrials for hung juries, I had that happen to me. It's part of the trade. You have to learn from it, grow from it, do better the next time, pick a better jury. I do think they will re-prosecute Stephen Pankey, and I have some good constructive advice for Mike Rourke, and I put it together in the form of sound bites of him and Pankey and situations where I think he might have done a little better. And it starts like this. This is Rourke getting up to cross-examine Pankey after he's given his version of events saying, hey, I made up any knowledge of the case. I tried to be a big man. Sorry. That kind of thing. And then the prosecutor has to approach the defendant. And I'll tell you what I do as a rule of thumb. No matter what's gone on ahead of time, this is the first encounter. I'm going to try to be nice, civilized, try to get a lot with honey. Do you agree with this? Do you agree with that? Treat him like a gentleman. Tell I start establishing the lies and the reasons for me not to like him and the jury not to like him. And then I get mean toward the end, not at the start. That's not fair. You're going to come off as a bully. And this guy is already admitted to being, well, he looks slightly effeminate. He says he's gay, bisexual. He got kicked out of the army for that. My God, this guy talks about his marriage. He didn't satisfy his wife, wasn't turned on by her. That's why she's making up stuff against him now. It's that kind of a case, a lot to work with, as you will hear. But what's the tone of voice? What's the proper approach for the elected DA in that judicial district as he stands up to cross-examine? Here is what Mr. Michael Rourke did and said. Mr. Rourke, thank you. You had a saying that you had prominently posted in your apartment in Twin Falls, Idaho. Do you remember that saying? Good morning to you, too. Did you understand my question, Mr. Pankey? Uh, not really. Do you recall an Edmund Burke quote that you had prominently posted oh, in your apartment yeah. in Twin Falls? Please yeah. don't interrupt me. Let me ask my question. Okay. Do you recall that quote? Yes. The quote reads, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Correct? Correct. That's what you've done for 37 years. Nothing. Right? You've done nothing to ease the pain of the Matthews family. You've done nothing to come forward with information that you had about your involvement in Janelle Matthews' murder and disappearance. Correct? I guess you're testifying. I'm asking you a question, Mr. Pankey. You keep asking questions and you don't give me time to answer. Answer my question, Mr. Pankey. I did some things that were wrong. Oh, I know. Oh, I know that's a weak start for a prosecutor. Just at the outset, Panky says, good morning to you, too. Like, uh, can we start civilized? But Rourke displayed his contempt at the end, saying, oh, I know. Like, he doesn't have to prove the case. He knows these things. 
And uh, I just think it was a, a weak start, and he establishes from the outset that the main problem he has with Panky is that Panky was saying he had all this information about Janelle Matthews, and now he's saying that he's lying about it. And isn't that a terrible thing to do to the grieving Matthews family, which it undeniably is, but it doesn't mean he murdered Janelle. And now I think that the prosecutors kind of moved the goalpost to, hey, what he did was inconsiderate to this victim's family. And you know what? The jury found him guilty of false reporting, which is a class three misdemeanor. And I'll get a slap on the wrist for that. But they hung on the big charges of kidnapping and murder. And as the cross-examination goes on, I think you will understand perhaps why the jury could not say guilty. Again, Rourke, in this next soundbite, makes it all about how the defendant, Stephen Pankey, made the Matthews family feel bad, and they've been victimized enough. You could have given the Matthews family closure that they so richly deserved years ago, couldn't you? I don't know what you mean. And now yesterday, you get up on that stand and you basically thumb your nose at everybody in the room and say, ha ha, never mind, I made it all up. That what you want us to believe? That's what I want. That's the truth. Still can't give the Matthews family that closure that they deserve, can you? I don't have all the pieces of the puzzle. So there is D.A. Rourke saying that he wants to give the Matthews family closure, which everybody wants to give them closure, but that's not the issue. The issue is whether Panky killed Janelle Matthews. And the fact that he's been caught lying about the situation may mean he's a John Mark Carr, a wannabe in a case, or maybe he's the real deal. But again, Panky kind of gets the better of the prosecutor there and I think that Panky might have been easy pickings if you started off correctly. Of course, again, this is hindsight, but I don't like the approach here. You got Panky who's talked about being gay or bisexual, this or that, and you would think that a prosecutor could have tied that into the kidnapping of a 12-year-old girl in a more skillful way, but the prosecutor here just wants to show Panky lies about things, so he apparently attempts to bring out that Panky lied to get into the Army as a gay guy back when gays were not supposed to be in the Army, and isn't he a liar over that? And my gosh, what a weak point to make. And here's how it sounded in court. By the way, when you say, hey, this is a small thing, maybe it's something you should not have gone into, because every time you throw a punch, Everybody is evaluating whether it's landing or it's missing. And I think this one missed badly. Even in Greeley, Colorado, as he brings up the fact that Panky is gay or bisexual or whatever. And you've had 37 years to think about what you were going to say if you ever had to sit on that stand. And that's what you came up with yesterday? I made it up? Yes. A couple of small things I want to talk about. You keep talking about this bisexual or homosexual history that you have. Did you disclose that sexual orientation to the Army? 
Yes. You did? Yes. They let you in the Army claiming that you were a homosexual in 1975? No. I'm confused then. Yes, you are. Ouch. Wow. Walking into a huck right to your kisser, I'm confused then. Yes, you are. Round a panky, unexpected, but you probably want to know what was said next. And here it is. Did you tell him you were bisexual or homosexual? I admitted it when I was caught. Caught what? With another soldier. And that's the reason you were discharged from the Army? Yes. You sure you want to stick with that one, Mr. Pankey? Or do you want to rethink your answer on that one? I want that answer. It's the truth. Nowhere in your certified military records is there any indication that you were ever caught with another soldier. Nowhere. That would have to be explained. So the Army made a mistake in just leaving those parts out? I think they agreed to leave them out. Do you know that for sure? No. Do you know that for sure? No. But do you know the other way, Mr. Prosecutor? Not really. And the point you tried to make kind of went down the drain. I just think that there were aspects of this cross-examination that were problematic. I'm not playing it all for you, but he started a whole stanza with, you like to gaslight people. And the defendant, Panky, said, I don't know what gaslight really means. And a lot of people don't know what gaslight means, but that was the theme that the prosecutor wanted to stick with. And he was talking about when he sent his detectives up to Idaho to confront uh, Panky at his home and to call him and talk with the prosecutor because Panky had been writing letters to the DA. This is personal. He's been kind of taunting Rourke. And so apparently some detective showed up and said, hey, this is serious about this girl. You're asking for immunity in your letters. Why don't you talk to the DA right now? And Panky's pissed because he said, I had a lawyer. You got to go through my lawyer. And he brings up the ethics of that. And this is the way that went as the elected DA Rourke confronts the accused defendant, Stephen Panky, for the brutal shooting, murder, kidnapping of little Janelle Matthews back on December 20, 1984. So when Detective Pro comes to interview you as a witness in Twin Falls, Idaho, and you in turn turn around because you don't like the direction the interview went and accuse him of spitting on you and assaulting you, that's not gaslighting? It was unethical what... Uh... Detective Pill was doing. And you still want to persist in this notion that he spit on you and assaulted you? By spitting on me, he, ins he assaulted me. He's not the only one you've accused of spitting on you over the course of your writings, is it? Uh, I also accused the judge of doing that. Did that judge spit on you too? Yes. Did you hear in the recording where, of the interview with you out on the on the bench in front of your Twin Falls condominium, the point in time where Detective Pearl got in your face and say, Steve, I need to talk to you and spit on you? Judge, I would just like clarification that there's been no allegation that this court has spit on Mr. Panky. I want to make that clear. Oh, I didn't say that. 
No. I didn't, I didn't insinuate that in the fight. My, certainly my apologies. All right. Thank you. Judge Kearns has not spit on me. And there's another point in the favor of the defendant. Judge Kearns is the trial judge in Weld County. Panky keeps talking about the 20 misdemeanors he had previously, why he doesn't like the cops. He's been in a lot of courtrooms. He's run for governor twice in Idaho. He's a character, but apparently Rourke feels like he's beneath him. And I think it was wrong for Michael Rourke, the elected DA, to take this line of questioning to the ne'er-do-well Steve Pankey, but he's still a human. He's on trial for his life, and I don't think this was effective as Rourke tries to pound Pankey for his intellect, his lack thereof, or his overestimation thereof. You judge this soundbite. So what I want to do now, Mr. Pankey, is get outside of this preconceived, preset agenda, this narrative that you have created, and let's talk about some things that really happened, okay? First of all... Objection, argumentative. Sustained. You've been trying for decades to convince everyone you come into contact with that you're an above-average guy, haven't you? In terms of intelligence, in terms of everything that you have tried to do in the course of your lifetime. That's not true. Oh. But you've been unsuccessful at virtually every turn because you lost every election that you ran for sizably, correct? True. Do you know what a GT score is in the Army? Um, a general technical score? I've never heard that term. Okay. Do you know that your GT score from the military, from the U.S. Army, was 100, and that puts you right squarely average? Did you know that? That's probably true. Okay. I didn't know that, no. And you haven't been able to hold a job for very long in the course of your lifetime, correct? You've had a lot of jobs. I've had a lot of jobs. And don't you wonder what the jury is thinking about there? It's kind of demeaning. As a prosecutor, you've got to guide them to the end zone, and you want them to like you. And look, I've had mistrials, and I've had to adjust, and I'm tall, and I'm big. Mike Rourke is kind of a big, menacing male presence, he needed to lighten up a little here. But instead, Panky gets the better of him in exchange after exchange, including this one, going back to when Rourke sent the detectives to his home in Idaho and he didn't like it and he felt blindsided. And again, I don't think Mr. Rourke comes off the better in this exchange with Mr. Panky. One of the things you talk about in many of your writings was the fact that you absolutely despised the notion that you were unprepared when these gentlemen showed up at your door. Right? Yes. They blindsided you. Yes. You didn't have time to prepare. Yes. But if you made it all up, what would you have to prepare? They blindsided me. What would you have to prepare if you had simply made it all up? I thought it was unethical what they did. Did you want, Mr. Panky, do you understand my question? What would you have had to prepare if the truth is in your reality that you simply made all of this up? What would you have to prepare? 
he wanted me to get on the phone with you, which I thought was unethical as I'll get out. Mr. Pankett, why aren't you answering my question? I am answering your question. What would you have had to prepare? What would you have had to make? What would you have had to get ready? You knew, and Detective Pearl knew, that I had hired a Korean attorney named Hong Pak. Why does his ethnicity matter? It does matter because you didn't respect him. I'm going to try one more time, Mr. Pankey. What information, what materials, what narrative, what agenda would you have had to prepare in order to speak with Detective Prill and Detective Cash? My attorney had that. You went around my attorney, which is unethical. Wow. And you know what? An attorney is not supposed to contact somebody represented by another attorney. It is unethical. And the jury had to wonder about that. Score another one for Panky. Unexpected, right? The prosecutor needs to wear the white hat. Let me tell you a little secret about prosecutors. Not all of them are good cross-examiners because this situation doesn't present itself a lot. Defense attorneys cross-examine more than prosecutors do. Because it's not all that often that a big defense is put on. But it's always true that the prosecution has a lot of witnesses and the defense needs to cross. Prosecutors are more masters at direct examination. Anyway, I think that Mike Rourke can do better, will do better next trial. I'm glad to help. One thing you can't do is ask open-ended questions. It's cross-examination. Leading questions are allowed. What are you doing letting a defendant just go on and give open-ended explanations? But that's what happens here again. The star witness against Panky, his ex-wife, who said that uh, at a funeral, he said, I hope there's not because of what happened to Janelle. There was a burnt car. He got Panky with knowledge of the raking of the snow outside the house. A lot of things like Jean Benet. Wow, this happened so long before Jean Benet, 12 years before. But again, Christmas time, a little girl, her presents already stacked up. She gets kidnapped, murdered, horrible. A month before that, in 1984, Lorraine Martelli got kidnapped, tortured, slaughtered, put in the back of her Monte Carlo in the trunk while Frank Rodriguez went and partied. I handled that case, and he got the death penalty. The killer of Janelle Matthews probably would have faced the death penalty back then if he would have been caught killing a kid like that. My God, it's horrible. Anyway, the star witness, the ex-wife, Rourke keeps asking, how can she be a liar? And Panky says, it's because she's a woman scorned. I don't know if that's true or not, but you can evaluate it for yourself. Any other reason you can think of that she would get on the stand and lie about something that happened 37 years ago? A, a woman's scorned and that uh, it would cut off, if I was convicted, it would cut off my relationship with Mark. So she's held this grudge in your mind for whatever happened during your marriage and whatever caused your divorce for decades before she extracted her measure of revenge against you from that witness stand? Objection argumented. Overruled. 
a woman scorned. That's all I know. Well, there you go. Is that true or not? You can watch the testimony of Angie Hicks on YouTube. Evaluate it for yourself. This is a tough case. Interesting one. I expect there will be a retrial, but I just advise Michael Rourke, who loves the Matthews family, I expect. You get tight with victims' families through the years. They're counting on you. But it was a mistake to set it up where Panky needs to uh, not tell lies because the Matthews are hurting. You're right. That's a horrible thing to do. And now he's convicted of that misdemeanor, but the murder is another subject. And when you start your cross-examination with it's all about giving closure to the Matthews, well, then you run into this, which might have caused a juror or two or more to say, I'm not convicting this guy because you know what? He said something decent. Even the prosecutor agreed. Listen to this exchange between Michael Rourke and Stephen Pankey. I did not want to, uh, at some point, be forced to testify against Jim Matthews. Are you trying to sit here and tell this jury you think Jim Matthews is responsible for his daughter's death and disappearance? Absolutely not. He, his wife, and his daughter were totally truthful that they did not know me. I think they are totally innocent. Okay. Thank you for that. What an odd thing for Rourke to say. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, it's now the case over. He apologized. Yeah. But did he murder their daughter? Right there might have been in the, the time when Rourke should have taken a harsher tone and said, yeah, you know that because you killed her. That's how you know Jim Matthews had nothing to do with it. You got to build up to a tone. That's my advice. I'd like justice to come out of this case, and it requires great advocacy on both sides. It will be interesting to see what happens next. I'll be watching. I like murder mysteries like this. And I hope you enjoyed this segment. Wow, when you've been practicing law for almost 40 years like me, you learn a thing or two. If you have a legal problem, give me a call. 303-861-2800. At Springer and Steinberg, we do all kinds of law. Call me, 303-861-2800. We will help solve your problem. Thank you. Hey, what a great show. I hope you enjoyed that segment. I like analyzing big criminal cases. And the murder of Janelle Matthews, that's huge. I hope justice comes someday and the truth be told and a jury come to unanimous agreement about that truth. But mistrials, it's like kissing your sister. Nobody's happy, although it's better than a conviction if you're a defense attorney. That's for sure. Or a defendant. The prosecutor will live to fight again. Let's see what happens when Michael Rourke makes that call. I want you to listen at the end of the show to the tribute to Maurice Rose, engineered by our guest, Marshall Fogel. It was a big ceremony at the Capitol, and it's outstanding. Jared Polis, Marshall Fogel, others, Alec Garnett, who's been a guest on our show. What a great legislator he is. I want you to listen and 
realize the history of Maurice Rose and this statue commemorating him that will be on the Capitol Olivai for the rest of time. Although for the rest of time, it's a long, 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 long way to go. Dave Gunders has a lot longer to go. What a great birthday celebration. Super song, safe haven. Thank you, Troubadour. Many more happy birthdays. Same to you, Marshall Fogel. Same to you out there. Give a listen to Maurice Rose, who died way too young, but now he's commemorated as the American hero he was, the Colorado, Denver, Colorado Jewish boy, honored as one of the greatest generals ever, greatest battle tank commander in American history. And I don't think we'll fight many wars that way anymore, so I think that record will stand. Here's to you, Maurice Rose. Give a listen to this ceremony from July 2021 as Colorado dedicated itself to a statue commemorating the one and only General Maurice Rose. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Today is another step in the journey of honoring one of our states, our country's finest, the life of General Maurice Rose. Truly one for the ages. It's, a, it's really important to raise awareness within Colorado and across the country to visitors here at our state capitol about the great legacy, dedication, and service of General Maurice Rose. I want to thank the folks here today who worked tirelessly to make this day happen. We're joined by Marshall Fogel, General Rose's biographer. Where'd Marshall go? We're joined by Paul Shaman, who along with Fogel brought this idea to the state legislature. Thank you, Paul. Uh, one of uh, Colorado's um, best, most talented artists and sculptors, George Levine from Loveland is here. He's putting his talents towards the statue and we have a, uh, a small replica of what will be an 18 foot, uh, including the uh, base uh, structure. And of course, we're joined by uh, several legislators, uh, Representative Woodrow, of course the speaker will be um, coming up in just a moment and he really is largely responsible for, for us achieving this day and getting this done. You know, we know that our country has a complicated past <clears throat> regarding the, the statues we build and what, the, what, the, what they represent. This is a great honor to celebrate someone who earned their reputation in service to our country, uh, making great sacrifices. General Rose's father was a Polish rabbi. He arrived in the United States with his family in the late 1800s. Maurice was only three years old when he got here, and the family landed in Denver. Fourteen years later, at 17, Rose enlisted in the United States Army, where he went on to serve in two world wars, World War I and World War II. He became the highest ranking and most distinguished Jewish American soldier in U.S. history along the way. President Dwight Eisenhower wrote in a telegram to General Rose's wife that Rose was, quote, a leader who inspired his men to speedy accomplishment of tasks that to a lesser man would have appeared almost impossible. Uh, sadly, in the final months of the war, General Rose lost his life in the line of duty. And here at home, in Colorado and across the nation, a grateful nation mourned and celebrated his contributions to protect our freedom. General Rose never made it home. He was buried at the Netherlands American Cemetery and Memorial in Margraten. So it seems only fitting that we begin the quest to really give him a final resting place and celebration in his hometown uh, that gave comfort to his parents and his family. 
We're proud to honor the memory of this towering figure in Colorado's proud history of military service by formally commemorating his life, his achievements, and his sacrifice through a monument which stands tall in Veterans Memorial Park. Colorado's home to over 400,000 men and women who've proudly worn the uniform of the United States of America and the different branches of service, tens of thousands of active duty military. And that's really what Veterans Memorial Park is all about, celebrating the contributions uh, that people have made uh, here in Colorado and across the country to protecting our freedoms. Uh, and first and foremost, we are proud because the, the values that General Rose represented and through him and through educating people about his life and his legacy, we're proud to support all of our veterans across our state. I want to, uh, without, without this, the effort of Speaker Alec Garnett, we wouldn't have this day. Uh, we wouldn't have the Veterans Memorial Park designation. Uh, I am just so pleased that Speaker Garnett has made a major point of his speakership to support Colorado's active duty, military members, and veterans. And of course, in this act today, to honor the life and contributions of General Maurice Rose. Speaker Alec Garnett. Thank you for that kind introduction, Governor. Um, good morning. What a, what a great day for us all to come together and honor a great Coloradan. Um, there are so many people to thank. And the governor did a great job of thanking um, so many who helped us get here today. I want to give a special shout out again to, to Marshall, who lives in House District 2, and so I represent him. And I really feel like I did my duty as your representative to get us here, but thank you for your service. And, and I really want to highlight uh, Larry Mizell, who guided this effort to enshrine the memory of of General Rose. Larry, thank you so much for your leadership, for your tireless advocacy. Uh, we wouldn't be here without you. Thank you very much. You know, uh, General Rose, you know, grew up just miles from here at sort of the turn of the century. He went uh, to East High School, just a short drive from where we stand here today. He was Colorado's proudest war hero. And many people have asked uh, through this journey, did I know about General Rose before uh, I was in the legislature? And the answer was no. And I, I, I stack that up to the fact that General Rose was a humble leader. He was very humble as a, as a man in all of his accomplishments. He, he, wasn't, uh, uh, he didn't brag about what he accomplished in both the world wars. And because of that, um, uh, he was really uh, looked up to and honored by all of the men who served under him. What's so great about today, and what's so great about the statue uh, that George Lundin has put together here, which is just spectacular, is that his achievements will be remembered from this point forward by most Coloradans. Think of all the fourth graders that are going to come to the Capitol, that are going to go through Lincoln Veterans Memorial Park, and that are going to learn about the amazing accomplishments of a humble leader in General Rose. This really is um, something that I think is, is going to help every generation of, of school-aged uh, school kids who come and visit the Capitol. This is uh, uh, something that, uh, as I've been thinking about the day and age that we find ourselves, the fact that nationwide 
people have uh, are fighting uh, with each other about what statues to put up and what statues to put down, it's very important to highlight that the General Rose Resolution passed the Colorado General Assembly unanimously in 2021. That shows what an amazing leader, what an amazing Coloradan, and what an amazing war hero General Rose was. It's an honor for me to stand here today. It's gonna to be an honor for me to take my kids and hopefully my grandkids to visit this spectacular statue and to talk about uh, the accomplishments that General Rose had in both the war fronts. With that, I would like to turn it over to the man who um, really uh, uh, put his accomplishments into this amazing statue and one of Colorado's great uh, artists, George Lundin. I have to raise the microphone up for that little guy. Uh, thank, thank you, Governor. Uh, thank you, Speaker. And uh, uh, thank you very much, all of you folks, for coming out today. It's been a real pleasure working on this sculpture from the time that I first met with Paul and Marshall. I, too, was one of those people that when they said, have you heard of General Rose? I said, no. They said, have you heard of Rose Hospital? I said, of course, everybody knows about Rose Hospital. And they said, well, that's the reason Rose Hospital is there, because of a fellow named Rose, General Rose. And once you start to look at his accomplishments, his life, you get pretty excited about what this kid did by joining the military when he was only 16. His mother grabbed him and pulled him home. And Finally, when he was 17, I believe his father had to sign the papers so he could join. And he took that, uh, took that first, uh, first step and uh, I think made us all proud. And, and I'm a very proud uh, Colorado boy now, after being here for 45 years, to uh, help out with this project. And, and uh, it should be a lot of fun. Thank you very much. And next up, Marshall Vogel, sorry, I actually uh, skipped over you, uh, but please come on up. Good morning, Governor, Mr. Speaker, Larry Mizell, my dear friend. It's an honor to be the author of a two-volume work, um, The Life and Legend and Times of General Maurice Rose. For those of you who aren't familiar with Rose, let me explain he is the most decorated battle tank commander in United States military history. He is the first to negotiate a surrender of a German army when the Allied forces uh, landed in Africa. He liberated Palermo. He earned three silver stars within a year and a half after he moved over to Africa to uh, fight Rommel. He also was the first to cross into Germany in World War II. How biblical is it for a Jewish war hero to be the first to invade Nazi Germany, uh, capture the first major city in Germany, shoot down the first German airplane in Germany, first across the Blitzkrieg line are just a few of the examples of what a courageous soldier he was because he led from the front. 
Governor, uh, I'd like to present you with Volume 1 and Volume 2 uh, of the life of General Rose on behalf of the 3rd Armored Division veterans, on behalf of the veterans who have served and are now serving in uh, our great country. And I'd like to present to you these books on behalf of the people of the state of Colorado as well. Thank you. Thank you. Speaker Garnett will now sign the resolution to make it official. Marshall, come on over here. Stand right this is the only time I get to like come and sit and sign. Okay, so congratulations. Uh, Casey and I actually, great story, went to high school together. So it is fun for us to stand here uh, all in support of uh, Maurice Rose and the efforts uh, that had gone into this. So with no further ado, the president of Brewers Hospital. Good morning. Um, what an amazing day. Uh, first, uh, I, I want to echo the thanks to Larry Mizell, uh, the governor, that uh, Alec Garnett, Marshall Fogel, and obviously Paul. Um, these gentlemen have worked tirelessly to recognize a true war hero. Uh, Rose Hospital was named obviously after General Maurice Rose, and when we've reflected back, um, there's not a better person to really carry on this legacy. He served his people, he served his country, and similar to the Rose Hospital, he served his community. And by memorializing General Rose uh, in the lawn across the street, this is just another way to recognize a true war hero and a true Coloradan and carry on his name. We are unbelievably excited to be able to help fundraise for this event. Um, and I really want to present a check to Paul Shanlin and encourage people throughout the community to help support this effort. Uh, to make this possible as we still have a few dollars to earn as well. So Paul, without further ado, we'd like to present you with a check for $10,000 uh, to help fund this effort. Thank you on behalf of everyone at rosemonument.org. There is not one single state-sanctioned statue or monument to a Jewish person in the state of Colorado. Over the past two years, we have been working to rectify this situation. The Colorado legislatures moved to pass this joint resolution authorizing the placement of a monument to Major General Maurice Rose in the park directly across the street is a realization of a goal of many within the community. In today's climate of increasing anti-Semitism, it is more critical than ever to set the record straight about Jews' loyalty to the countries in which they live. As far back as the Civil War, there have been questions about Jews' patriotism to the United States. Yet these questions all have been debunked by historians. This monument will visibly add to the historical record of Jewish patriotism by initiating the accurate documentation of a Colorado Jewish war hero's life, military accomplishments, and sacrifice. By creating a record 
and conversation about Maurice Rose's heroism through a world-class statue in a physical place of honor on the grounds of our state capitol, we will accurately be depicting a life story of which Jews and non-Jews across the fractured modern political spectrum can be proud. Again, thank you all for coming to this event and we hope to see you all back here next year for the unveiling of the Maurice Rose Monument. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.